Uh, so Genesis 6, uh, now came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and the daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, all of whom they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. They were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Uh, a lot of folks want to go through the Nephilim and all these other ideas, and um, I don't want to build a whole theology on that, and John probably spent time doing it. Uh, I've often looked at this idea of men of renown, that it's just a corrupt earth. You're going to see this because in context, the passage says that. And this idea of men of renown or giants on the earth, um, you know, we obviously had uh, um, Goliath, and and uh, there were his brothers that were killed in, in addition, and so there were some uh, funky folks on the earth, and uh, uh, but this idea of men of renown uh, with w- bore children to them, um, and and my spirit shall not strive with men. Um, it, it's it's almost like they came into the daughters of men. That this idea that that e- even though you're raising godly uh, progeny or godly kids, and and yet corruption occurs, and you know what was it? Uh, uh, the, the pastor used to say, uh, you don't get racehorses out of mules, you got to mate them up. Yeah. It, no one ever laughs at that. Uh, but but they just, they, he just married poorly. And I, I don't want to go deeper into that by talking about this idea of Nephilim and these giants that are, you know, half demon, half uh, human, uh, massively tall. And I, I just don't see it. And um, Chuck Missler, that was his whole deal, and he wrote books on it, and he's gone to be with the Lord, and I imagine he's having a conversation with the Lord about that right now, and when you get there, you can have one too. Let's move on. Okay, that was good. I'm glad John covered that last week. Verse 5, this is where we pick up. Then the Lord saw, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent, uh, excuse me, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I'll go on further in the passage momentarily, but I I wanted to take a look at... uh, this idea of verse 8, that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's a pretty cool passage. It's one that's blessed me. It's actually um, the very first time in the entirety of the Bible, the very first time that the word grace is used. Um, And you find it right here, and and you have the law of first. Uh, Genesis means beginning. So you find it there. You want to see the process of it. And he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This idea of searching for it, finding it, uh, his genealogy, uh, if you look at verse 9, it says, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. It doesn't mean that he was perfect in everything he did, but the idea is that he walked in righteousness. And we know that our righteousness is not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. And as he honored God, God kept a short account of his wrongs because God's grace is sufficient. And this is what Noah did. His eyes were fixed on the Lord. He walked with God. You'll see this. Um, but it contrasts that with those on the earth. The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth, even their thoughts. They couldn't even think good thoughts. 
There was no standard of morality. There was no right and wrong. Everyone did what seemed, what seemed right in their own eyes. And you just tried to get along and tried to figure it out. It's like living in the 1040 window in the worst of the uh, Sharia law world. And, and you know, you, you lie to each other to try to get something and lying is permitted. And, and you go through concepts like that. And all you want to do is just keep your family alive. And you're trying to do anything you can. This was the the issue of Noah's day, the entire earth was corrupt. Even the thoughts and the intents of man were corrupt. And then verse 13, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. It's the word we get kafar, which is uh, again, one of the very first presentations of the word uh, for atonement, kafar. It's atonement, it's covering. Uh, it's similar to uh, the Ark of the Covenant, this, this atoning aspect. And so outside with pitch or this kafar, and this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall, be, ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits. And uh, the old Bill Cosby, not probably good to refer to him, but he used to do that whole Noah's Ark thing. Yeah, why, what's a cubit? Uh, and I can go through the measurements. Suffice it to say, this thing is huge, hugeantic. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower second and third decks and behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife and your son's wives with you and every And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. And they shall be male and female. That's to uh, regenerate the earth and the the species of the birds after their kind. And by the way, birds of their kind. And and so you say, well, we've evolved in the, you know, the, 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 the frog turned into a rat and the rat turned into a whatever uh, of their kind. And you say, no, no, we've evolved. And, and you can see this with the moths that survived during the industrial uh, revolution that the, the, the black moths lived because the soot from the factories on the white oak, they were the only ones protected. The birds would see the white ones and eat it. And so they just continued with the black moths. And then that DNA was taken out. And then, yeah, well, they, they may change dimensions, but they never, you never see a, a lizard turning into a bird and a bird turning into a man. But that doesn't happen. It's just this idea of kind. And you're going to have uh, an array of kinds. And you say, well, you know, the gene pool gets messed up. This is, this is Genesis. This is a beginning. The gene pool isn't polluted. Men live a long time on the earth. Uh, ideas, and you can read stories, new earth, old earth, young earth. Concepts that, that uh, when the water canopy is lifted and, and men don't live as long, and it says that they'll live about 120 years prior to that, you know, the oldest man on the earth was Methuselah. The concept of that is after he dies, judgment comes. And it really, when Methuselah died, judgment came. And, and you know, Noah's building this ark. He's got Methuselah right there. He's trying to build as fast as he can. Anytime Methuselah gets a cold, he's like, boys, work harder. Let's go. And got to get this thing done. And, and he's doing this for 100 years. He's building this ark. 100 years building the ark. And we'll find that in Peter. And the scripture says in Peter that he was a preacher of righteousness for 100 years. And I want you to kind of put that in your memory for a little bit, because for 100 years, Noah went against the grain. He didn't get along. He didn't try to fit in. He walked with God when no one else would. 
He, he was a penny looking for change. He stood out like a sore thumb. For a hundred years, he faced ridicule. For a hundred years, his family was, was ridiculed and mocked, and they just kept building. And they built this ark where there wasn't any water. <clears throat> People would laugh at them. Imagine, imagine doing it for a month. Imagine doing it for five months. Imagine doing it for a year. Five years. When's that rain coming? 10 years. 20 years. 60 years. Generations are coming and going and watching this endlessly. Millions of people on the earth, not one of them walking with God. He is a preacher of righteousness saying there's going to be a flood. You're going to want to get on this thing. There's one door. There's one way. This is it. And you guys need to understand when that hits, you need to repent and come in. This is the covering. This is God's protection. 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, the, the mocking and the ridicule, endless, and yet he continues. And this is one of those things where I, I, I think about this, the message this morning, this idea of waiting on God. Have you waited 100 years for him to do what he said he was going to do? Well, I know, but I've been waiting 100 minutes, and I am just so upset with him. And you'll take for yourself all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourselves, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him. One of the reasons why Noah walked with God is because he did what God said. That's how you walk with God. If his word says it, you do it, and that settles it. And we talk about this idea that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis speaks of this concept of faith and that we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, it says in Ephesians, not of works lest any man should boast. And then it defines for us faith. It says, faith is the substance of things. This is Hebrews 11. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. And then you drop down to verse 6 and it says, But without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is God, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And then verse 7, immediately following that, says, By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, a hundred years away, being divinely warned, a hundred years away, moved with godly fear, reverential fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. Heir of righteousness, according to faith. Heir of righteousness, according to faith. He wasn't righteous because of what he did. He was righteous because he trusted in the one who was righteous. It goes on to say in, in uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, but there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. Verse four, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes. And he goes through this whole deal and he, he speaks of Lot and this, this man that, that he calls righteous and, and establishes this concept of, a, of, of judgment upon the earth. And, and as I was contemplating 
what to teach tonight, it just kept jumping out at me, this, this verse 8, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I, I think it's the first time mentioned. It's something that we should put emphasis on. I, I had some fun with it. I, I don't know if David Plumley had a chance to do it, but I, I love this. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I saw that on Instagram. Now, folks are like, ah, there's no ark, and you know, this is just a fairy tale, and people want to dismiss it. And I, I want to share with you some things. There's, there's, today, there's over 270 cultures that retain a distant memory of this ark life-changing event. Details have been lost, but most of the legends share a common theme. Man became corrupt. The flood was worldwide. Eight people survived. Representatives of all land animals were saved. A dove was released to seek dry land. The survivors came down from a mountain to repopulate the whole world and so on. And, and they say that they, they pulled this from ancient myths and the Bible stole it. But it's the other way around. The Bible states it. There's a clear depiction of it. Um, this one author says, We know the Bible is the only true account and thus the reason the flood stories use names similar to the Bibles is because they are borrowing from God's word. That's why Noah... Uh, like names uh, in these cultures, such as Nau, Nua, No, Nos, Nu, are preserved in so many of these flood le- legends today. Um, and and it's it's a it's a fascinating story that has been told time and time again when we teach our children that God would save mankind. But it's more significant because as you look at every passage. The world is evil, God judges it. The world is evil, God judges it. But this story of Noah is uniquely different because it equates Noah's ark with the work of Christ in the New Testament. And I'll explain that momentarily. But I like this. I I copied it just to have some fun. All I really need to know I learned from Noah's ark. Noah didn't wait for a ship to come in. He built one. Plan ahead. It wasn't raining when Noah built the ark. Stay fit. When you're 500 years old, someone might ask you to do something really big. Speed isn't always an advantage. The cheetahs were on board the ark, but so were the snails. Remember that the ark was built by amateurs and the Titanic was built by professionals. No matter how bleak it looks, if God is with you, there's always a rainbow on the other side. And above all else, don't miss the boat. I think that's the funniest one of all of them. Don't miss the boat. There are many things to learn from this story, but the, the, the key to me, again, is this idea of grace. Um, but there's something that God wants us to learn in addition to this grace. Um, he wants us to uh, understand, I would say, that it's very clear in the passage that mankind had become unbelievably evil. Unbelievably evil. You remove God from the culture. You remove God from the education of your children. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You take all that out. What happens to the earth? What happens to the world? What is right? What is wrong? I mean, it's already very hard to understand what am I supposed to do? We're, we're, we're judged even on our thoughts. We're judged. And, and, and I, I, when I sat with um, Evan Lowe up in Sacramento, the homosexual assembly member who put forward AB 2943, I said, Evan... No, actually, I said Assemblyman Lowe. I, I said, you have LGBTQ, and then you have other letters that are just being added, and there are some universities that go up to 15 letters in addition. And I said, as I understand it, is trying to follow this sociological concept isn't gender fluid. According to the secular progressive movement, is gender fluid? And he said, well, yes. 
I said, so why can't someone come out of a same-sex attraction if gender is fluid? He, he didn't really have an answer. And, and as we go through this, God says there's a man and a woman. There's two genders. Man says, no, there's many. How do you legislate that? How do you operate? How do you have sporting events? How do you, what do you do? The homosexual community struggles with the transgender community. And the transgender community, and you, you can go all the way down the line, everyone's just trying, what, what is the standard? Just, just tell me how to get along. Tell me how I can raise my family and not have to deal with all this. Will I be facing a lawsuit if I don't use the proper pronoun? And then just, just remove any vestige of an absolute. What then happens? Well, lying is okay if, if what? Well, if it benefits you. And it's okay to use fetal tissue as long as you can keep other people alive. And, and it's okay to murder this section of folks because they're not quite like us. I mean, we can go through Nazi Germany. Jews were rats. Just diminish the, this is what the, the Nazis stated. All you have to do is just remove any vestige of, of God's plan and what happens to mankind when they're left to their own account. It becomes awful. Eating human flesh is okay as long as it's the other guys. And then you look and you say, hmm, you can't even think a good thought. If I'm nice to you and I show that I'm nice to you, that's a sign of weakness in some cultures. And I'll kill you. You, you, you look at some of these tribes in, in, in Guinea and they have to dress up and try to frighten one another. They're all driven by fear. You've got to be really, really bad to get God this upset. And guess what? I think we're getting close. It's described this way in Genesis 6, 5. The, law, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. In case that wasn't clear, God repeated himself a few verses later in verses 11 through 13. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. For all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. Am I going to put an end to all people? For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. There was no kindness. There was no compassion. Verse 5 sums it up this way. Every inclination of the thoughts of a man's heart was evil all the time. Again, they couldn't even think clean thoughts. They just wanted to fit in, get by. And then you have this one man who refuses to fit in. The world was unbelievably evil, but this man was unquestionably righteous. He was right with God. His name was Noah. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9 says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. What made him so righteous is that he obeyed the Lord. He walked with God. It made him different from everybody else. You know, sometimes it's uncomfortable to walk with the Lord. Especially when you're ridiculed. And you think about this idea that he walked with God. People say, well, what about, you know, 
how can you say that Jesus Christ is the only way, the only truth, the only life? No man can come to the Father but by him. When you have folks in, in deepest, darkest, and name the continent who have never heard the gospel. And the Bible says that every man is without excuse. All creation speaks to the glory of God. It says every man is without excuse. Enoch didn't have any radio stations. He didn't have any seminaries. There weren't any churches. There was nothing. He walked with God. Same with Noah. He walked with God. Man knows in his heart. We're accountable. You know, it's, it's Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher. Every human being is created with a God-shaped void. You know that you know that you know. And you've you got to get right. And Noah, interestingly enough, he spent the majority of his time with the Lord. 100 years, preacher of righteousness. 100 years, preacher of righteousness. He waited on God. God. While God waited for the earth to repent, Noah waited on God in order to walk with him. Total contrast. Every day of the week, Noah got up, went to work, obeyed the Lord. Everything God commanded, Noah did. He believed God existed. He believed God cared for him. He trusted the Lord for provision. He spent time praying. He wasn't sporadic. He did it continually, the scripture says. Every day of the week, he made a conscious decision to follow the Lord. When you wake up, are you the kind of person that when you wake up, the devil goes, damn, he's awake or she's awake. This idea that you're going to wake up. I said that word. I'm sorry. You, 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 well, the devil would say that. He, and, and you wake up every morning and, and you, you realize, I am going to serve the Lord. What do you want to do today with your life, God? The one you purchased with your blood. What do you want to do today? It's not about me. It's about you. What do you want to do today? And this is, this is Noah's life. Whatever God told Noah to do, that's exactly what he did. And he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's important. He did everything God told him to do, even, this, this, is, this is interesting, even when it seemed crazy. I mean, it, it speaks in, in Hebrews of the foolishness of God. We've covered this. The foolishness of God is, is faith, believing God, trusting him. And the foolishness of God is to build an ark where there is no water and to do it for 100 years. By faith, Noah, when warned about these things not yet seen, in reverential fear, he built an ark to save his family. Think about this. For a hundred years, he warned the people. He warned them that this day was coming and they had a chance to change, to repent and to turn. He didn't want them to perish. As the scripture says in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. And by the way, this is an interesting one. Let me contrast this. Peter writes this. You know about Peter? This is a man... Where Genesis 6, 8 says, Noah found grace in the eyes of God. This is a man, Peter, who understands grace probably better than any other apostle. God said to him, you know, Peter says, I will, I, I will die for you. I'll, 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 they can arrest me. I, I, will, I will never leave you. I will, I will die for you. And Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. He says, no, Lord. And sure enough, he denies the Lord and he's just miserable and he's walking from a distance, warming himself by the fire, swearing, telling people, I don't even know who the man is. And, and the third time he does it, he locks eyes and he wept bitterly and he just sees the swollen, bruised, beaten face of the Lord and he realizes he's let him down. And, and three times he's denied him, warming himself by this anthrakia, this black coal fire. The only two times in the Bible where that word is used, it's this pungent anthracite fire, olfactory senses, sense of memory recollection, warming himself by this fire, denying the Lord, smelling the fumes, denying the Lord, smelling the fumes. The only other time in scripture where you see this word anthrakia is found in John when the Lord restores him. 
And they're, they, he's, he's, Jesus is on the shore. They've been fishing all night, caught nothing. He says, cast it on the other side. They do. They catch a fish. He says, it's the Lord. Peter jumps in the water. He puts on his cloak, so he has nothing to warm himself. Most people take their clothes. He puts his, he swims to shore, soaking wet. And Jesus is by an anthracia, black coal fire. And who's the one who's freezing cold who's been in the water in the early morning? It's Peter. And he gets to that fire, and he's looking at the Lord, and he just feels like he's let him down. And while he's smelling these fumes, Jesus asks him not once, not twice, but three times, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? And each time he says, Lord, you know I love you. And Lord, you know I love you. Lord, you know I love you. And each time he says, and feed my sheep. Just get back up and keep moving. You're going to let me down, but I will never let you down. My grace is sufficient in your time of weakness. I don't give up on you, even though you give up on yourself. God who began a good work is faithful to complete it. Peter realizes this, and a man who was afraid of a 12-year-old girl by a fire warming himself, denying the Lord, is now empowered in the book of Acts to stand in front of thousands to declare the gospel. And God brought it all to, to remembrance, and, and here's a man that understands the grace of God, and he pens this shortly before he'd be crucified upside down, right after his wife was killed. In Second Peter, he writes, chapter 3, God is patient with you, not, in, not wanting that anyone would perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. As you ponder that passage, Peter would go on to say in chapter 3, verse 20, God waited patiently in the days of Noah. This is interesting. Every, every verse pertaining to this chapter 6 of Genesis is man is wicked, God judges. Until you get to what Peter wrote, this man who understood grace. Chapter 3, verse 20, God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with the angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. It speaks of hope and salvation. God equates this picture of the ark with hope and salvation. I think it's kind of cool, because people say the ark didn't exist. This is about 14,000 feet on Mount Ararat. You have this interesting structure. They, they want UNESCO to make it a, a site. They've done extensive studies, and it just depends on what scientist is trying to bend the facts and who you're going to believe, but it, it's fascinating. You, you see the, the layout, and it's exactly the measurements from the tip where you see the letter D all the way to the front there, the exact measurements of what they would consider the cubit and the width as well, even though it's spread through time. In there, you find um, petrified wood, laminated deck timber. This is um, wrought iron rivet. 14,000 feet on Mount Ararat. And people say, well, it was a localized flood. How did this thing end up at one of the highest spots? Well, it, it, it's, it's, it's by two-minute pitch. It's, 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 it's white oak. White oak doesn't exist on Mount Ararat. How did it get there? And what, you, you go through different pictures of it. This is what's fascinating. They call it the, the anchor stone, uh, Noah's Ark anchor stone. And on it are these, what they call Armenian crosses. The Armenian Orthodox would, there, there's stories, and, and I remember being at the Armenian church. Michelle and I served there for five years. 
There were folks that would say ancestors that came from the region of Ararat, which was occupied by Armenians. I, I remember when I was a boy, by, my, my, no, my great-grandfather told me when he was a boy, he would be standing on this, the kids would play on it. You just go back generations, they speak of this, this was a place of, of great worship. And they don't want to open it up, they don't want to make it a tourist site. But I mean, come on, look, I mean, look at that. It just doesn't fit. Where are the oak trees? Where's the bituminous pitch? Where, where, do you, where do you get petrified wood at that, that level? Wrought iron rivets. This anchor stone. This is a replica of it, and there's another one in Kentucky, or yeah, I think it's Kentucky. And, and this, is, this is just their depiction of it. Three levels, only a window at the top level to release the dove, and then you had the door on the side. But this is what's interesting. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then that idea of Noah being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared this ark for the saving of his household. God wanted to save the world. He extended for a hundred years grace, 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 Imagine that, a hundred years being mocked and ridiculed, going against the tide, preaching a God of salvation, a God of mercy, a God of grace. Saved by grace through faith. Noah's righteousness was by faith. Hebrews 11 declares this. Peter, which under, who understood grace, declares it. He equates this concept of this ark with this baptism of Christ. You see this picture of salvation. You see this picture of hope. That's what makes the story so unique. That's what makes Genesis 6 so precious because this concept of grace throughout all of Scripture, God's riches at Christ's expense, unmerited favor. We don't deserve it, but he's willing to give it. And, and grace is magnificent, but there's one word greater than grace. It's mercy. Mercy. You see, you can't have grace without mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. Well, if God is completely just and the wages of sin is death, then somebody has to pay the penalty for that. Somebody has to atone. We're on, we're on the slave block. Somebody's got to cover that debt. You want justice or do you want mercy? And God's extending mercy, but he's also just. And he's the one who says man must be judged because of what they've done. And there's none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. One sin is death. One death. One death. Holy God, reverential fear. One, one sin, death. That's, that's the penalty. How does God have mercy? He atones. Kafar, pitch, outer covering. I'll give you a way out. You come into my righteousness. Not your own mind. You see, our righteousness is not found in what we do. It's found in what he did. For God so loved the world he gave. What did he give? His son. Why his son? Well, because his son was without sin. And the penalty for sin was death. He hadn't committed a, a sin. So his blood could be shed. And he could pay the penalty for you and me. I can't die for you. My blood pumps with sin. You can't die for me. You're on death row. You have your own death to deal with. I got mine to deal with. 
as much as I'd want to die in your place or you'd want to die in my place, neither of us could do it because we're both having to face our own death. You only got one life. And we're all guilty. Capital punishment. Guilty as charged. And so we're waiting for someone who can pay that penalty. We're, we're, we're looking for someone who can atone. We're looking for someone who can cover. We're looking for mercy. Mercy that satisfies justice. And Jesus came. And he, he covered our sin as the ark was covered in this kafar, this pitch, this atonement. And the door, only one, only one door. And you know who closed it? The finger of God. And the flood took a long time. It began to rain and rain. They laughed. Why one door? It's the only way in. It's the only way out. And God waited. For a hundred years, grace had been preached. Salvation, hope, declared in Second Peter chapter 3. This was a picture, this idea that grace is given, mercy is given for those who would receive it. How do you receive it? By faith. By faith. But you do that and people think you're nuts. People think you're nuts. In this passage in, in 1 Peter, I said second, 1 Peter chapter 3, Noah's ministry is linked to Jesus. The ark was a shelter it was this covering for the saved in Noah's day. And as I said earlier, it only had one door, only one way in. And for folks who think that Christianity is narrow, I, I never tire of the silliness of that statement. I, I can't believe in Christianity, it's too narrow. Jesus is the only way. Truth is narrow. Well, I think you need to be open-minded. Great. How about this? After the service, we have, we have put together a beautiful meal for you. We have a lovely salad that we've prepared. A lovely meal with some meat, chicken, whatever you prefer. Some vegetables, some potatoes chocolate cake following. And, it, and it, it, it's going to be the finest meal you've ever had. The finest meal. The only problem is, in the course of the preparation of the meal, somebody drops some cyanide in one of the meals. And we're not sure where it is. But listen, as you're going to be open-minded, I think you need to be open-mouthed too. A lot of it's good. There's only a little bit that's poisonous. You've been warned. Right? And and it's not just that that crazy. It's this idea that truth is narrow. There's one way. There's one God. Anyone who comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Noah walked with God. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. You know how you find grace? You seek it. God, I am not right with you. I, I'd, I'd ask that you to have mercy. And then God gives you the mercy and he abundantly gives you grace. He pays it all and then blesses your life. And you're saved in the fray when everyone else is judged and life implodes. There's blessings that come with obeying commandments.
But you have to realize there's only one way into the ark. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Again, people say it's narrow. I, I didn't say it. The Lord said it. He didn't say there, Jesus is a way or a truth or a life. He said he's the. I and no other. That, that's, that's the text. I and no other. Now, that's a bold claim. And before you dismiss it in your comparative religion class, I would examine it a little deeper. Nobody's ever made the claims that Christ made and fulfilled them as Christ did. And, and if you struggle, I mean, and you say, well, there's no evidence. I think it's time to give it a little rest. And, and you go through these scriptures and you just see the profound nature of God. And this ark even speaks in our day, in our time. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, and this is for us. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. The problem in the Conejo Valley is that we don't really think we have a need. All of our problems are first world problems. I mean, really, there's nobody in the room who's going to go hungry tonight. I, I guarantee I can find you a meal. Do I look like I'm going hungry? Stop that. We, we, really, we really have first world problems. They're important to us, no, no doubt. But really, our greatest struggle is we're trapped in the jungles of prosperity. We don't have to be in some inner realm of a continent in, in, in some, you know, primal tribe. We, we've got our own tribe and we're trapped in the jungles of prosperity. I don't need God. I can do this without him. I, I, I know how to balance my checkbook. I know how to go to work. We've got really good roads. I drive a nice car. I can do all these things. I raise my kids without the Lord. And you go through life, and it says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the, in the day of judgment. They'll be eating and drinking and, and being given in marriage. We'll be all partying. We'll go through all the modes of, of life as we know it. And we'll go to a wedding, and we'll celebrate, and we'll have the reception following. We'll go to some funerals, and we'll celebrate following that. And, and, and we'll do all these things, and we'll eat, and we'll drink, and we'll have all kinds of meals, and we'll experience all these delicacies. And then, boom, judgment comes. The judgment, bam, it hits. You go, wait a minute. How can God be so cruel? <laughs> I'm sorry, what? <laughs> cruel? You think a preacher of righteousness for 100 years isn't enough? How about the gospel being preached for almost 2,000 years? And you have testimony of changed lives. You have cultures that have been absolutely blessed by the gospel. You have industries that have flourished by obeying the commandments. And you say, God's not fair? He's declared all along. He's, he's testified to it. And this right here, this to me has been echoing throughout history. And the echo of this that, is, that has changed our calendars, although we've tried to remove it, is the idea that the cross is the center theme of all of history. You see, Noah believed in God and trusted in an atonement that would come at an appropriate time. 
He didn't even have the testimony of the cross. Jesus lived and died and was buried and his tomb is empty. And no one's found the bones or the body yet. And they won't. And the resurrection story that we celebrate, if you can disprove the resurrection, we're done in Christianity. Boy, have they tried. And we look back at a most significant point in history that gives us this idea of walking by faith, but yet we have a testimony. Noah had to look forward to something that was yet to come and believe that by faith. And what was it? It was the crucifixion. Why the cross? Because God had to die that man might live. He's the only one who could pay the penalty and be completely just and merciful and give us grace. His body had to be broken. His blood had to be shed. And verse 8, to me, is the best part of chapter 6. Because all of us tonight can find grace in the sight of God. It's available to every man, every woman, every child. You believe in your heart, you confess with your tongue, Jesus is Lord. You will be saved to the glory of the Father. You're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's, a, that's the beginning. People say that's the gospel. It's, 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 it's way more involved. That's the starting point of this life with the Lord. He cleanses us of all unrighteousness. His blood atones, it covers us. The angel of death, when it comes to destroy mankind, it passes over us because Christ's blood covers us as the lamb's blood covered the doorpost of the Hebrew homes. It's a picture, this scarlet thread of redemption throughout all of history. Blood, blood, blood. And the angel of death passes over because it's covered, the kafar, the pitch. There it is. And there's only one way in, Jesus. That's it. That's it. I think tonight is, we reflect on that. The great gift of all of us is this testimony. Jesus said, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Remembrance of what? A God that so loves you and me that he left the glory of heaven's throne for the humiliation of an earthly cross to die in my place, your place, to pay that penalty. And then he cleanses us of not some, but all unrighteousness. That we can walk and be righteous in our generation. That we don't have to fit in. We can be countercultural and bold and fearless. Can you imagine how many people want to kill Noah and his family? And God said, you walk with me, no one's going to touch you. I got plans for you. And I just leave you with this. We're so afraid of the culture that we do everything and compromise everything to fit in. Imagine for a hundred years everyone mocking you and you're the only one who survives. You took God at his word. Your family got on the ark. No one else obeyed but your children walk with God. I can say as I stand before you today that all my children walk with God. I didn't do that. If it was up to me and it was left up to me, it would be a catastrophic failure. 
I can't say that was always been the case. God has begun a good work. He's faithful to complete it. I know there are folks that are waiting for, for their sheep to come home. I know that feeling. But guess what? They will. Because God put it on your heart, and he wants to save them just as much as you do. He wants them saved just as much as you do. He put that burden on your heart. Walk with him. Stay the course. Don't compromise. They'll get tired of the world, and they'll come back and say, can I be back with you, Dad? And the prodigal son, daughter, will come home. And the door hasn't closed yet. We have the length of time on this earth. And God is patient and long-suffering. He doesn't want any to perish, but he wants us all to be saved. But don't take this for granted. Don't mock it. Rejoice in what God's done. This is a testimony. And when you receive it, the exciting thing is, as a countercultural movement, you go out and live in such a way that the world just says, you're different. In the world that has no absolutes, you do. In a world that doesn't have morality, you do. In a world that lies, you don't. In a world that steals, you don't. In a world that cheats, you don't. In a world that's lazy and is entitled, you aren't. Why are you different? Jesus. So, the only way we can do this life is by grace. It's the only way. No matter what your sin is tonight, by faith you're forgiven. He cast it as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. Your future is behind you. Your present is before you. Goodness and mercy follow you all the days of your life. He cleans up the mess. He says, forget what's behind. Strive for what is ahead. Take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of you. This is all yours. I want you to enjoy it. Walk with me. Walk with me. And I'll tell you what. It'll be a wonderful ride. And then you'll see God face to face. And then you'll realize... I wish more people had joined us. So does the Lord. We will be preachers of righteousness. We'll declare his return and his life until the Lord returns or we go home. But as we take communion, let's remember him tonight and realize that your sins have been forgiven and your future has been established. Walk with him. He found grace in the eyes of God.